Welcome to Business Line's State of the Economy podcast, where you'll find insight, analysis, and the story behind the numbers. Hello and welcome to the State of the Economy podcast by Business Line. I am Nivedita Varadarajan. The Indian economy has been growing since the 1980s, and we have successfully moved millions of workers out of the agricultural sector and into jobs in the manufacturing sector and the services sector. But has every section of the Indian society reaped the benefits of this transition in the economy? As you know very well, the Indian society is very dynamic and it has a lot of complicated relations. We know that factors like gender, caste and family dynamics play a huge part in things like access to education and the workforce itself. What is the impact of these factors on the workforce? A new report by the Asim Premji University called the State of Working India looks into these aspects. The report has some good news for us. There has been faster structural change in the economy caste based segregation has come down and gender based earning disparities have reduced at the same time there are several issues that we need to work upon the report says we have high unemployment rates there's a lack of good jobs and poor representation of women in the workforce the report also shows that lower caste entrepreneurs are a rarity even today we have discussed these in some of our previous podcasts please find the links in the description box I spoke to Amit Basole and Rosa Abraham the lead authors of the study to know more about the report and its findings Amit Basole heads the Center of Sustainable Employment in India and works on jobless growth in India he is also the associate professor of economics school of art and science at the university Rosa Abraham also works at the university she is an economist who studies issues related to India's labor market She focuses on informal work and women's employment. Here are edited excerpts from my conversation with the both of them. Please do listen in. In your report, you found that marginalized communities, the SCs and STs, are more likely to be casual laborers, and now many of them moved on to become construction laborers. What exactly does this mean? Um, so, just one small uh, sort of uh, sort of a correction to what you said. Uh, Uh, most of the labor in construction tends to be casual so we can distinguish movement of workers from away from agriculture into construction on the one hand and away from various kinds of self employment and casual labor uh, away from self employment and casual work into salaried work so we try to distinguish these two kinds of processes so what has happened in india particularly with the marginalized caste is that we do see movement out of agriculture and many of them might have been casual workers in agriculture also they might have been out of agriculture but their most important destination tends to be also casual labor but in construction so that's a movement you know where the type of work doesn't change much it remains casual but then the other most significant movement which we were alluding to is that we have also seen that people are moving out of casual work into regular salaried work and that's the kind of movement that we would like to see now that movement does not occur to the same extent with different communities so for example um, dominant caste groups would have seen more opportunities uh, you know to move out of agriculture or to move out of casual labor while for civil caste groups uh, workers coming from those communities 
the tendency to remain in casual labor is a little higher, but they are also seeing some movement. So why is there a tendency for non-SCST communities to move towards regular employment faster than SCST communities? Right. So there are many factors here. The most obvious one, of course, would be that the access to the type of education that is needed and the level of education or the quality of education needed to get good salary jobs itself is a barrier. Right? So individuals from marginalized communities face discrimination and lack of opportunities at different levels, including the type of school they go to, whether they go to college or not, and so forth. So that's one kind of a process. The other is that individuals from dominant communities may have more networks, may have access to people with information, they know more about opportunities, which would not be the case for those with uh, coming from marginalized backgrounds. And of course, thirdly, there may be active discrimination as well. That for the same level of education, the same opportunity to interview for a job, etc., uh, workers from marginalized class would face discrimination that prevents them from accessing certain opportunities. We have evidence for all of these things. Uh, another thing which I found interesting was that Muslims were more often to be either self-employed or casual and they're not regular wage workers. Why is that? Is it uh, something to do with the fact that they are more into like things like handicrafts and things like that? Or right. That's part of the reason. Uh, again, you can think of it in terms of traditional occupations and livelihoods of a certain community. For Muslims, it would be perhaps would be things like crafts also. But also you can think of it in terms of the barriers that exist to move out mm. of traditional occupations and livelihoods. And once again, as with marginalized castes, with Muslims also, um, and we have done some analysis of Muslims by caste as well, because there's caste differentiations within Muslims too, uh, you might find that the access to education, quality of education and quantity of education, as well as other barriers, uh, including discrimination, can prevent people from leaving their traditional livelihoods and seeking uh, or, or getting better occupations, even if they seek those uh, opportunities. And then in the case of Muslims, that would be part of the story. The government right now is trying to promote people in self-employment. right? So they even introduced a scheme to get people who are doing traditional crafts uh, loans and other benefits. One of the criticisms against that, that scheme was that it's going to make people stay within their own community and stay within the same traditional job which they were doing. Does this actually impact people from moving on? See, that depends on how you do it. Well, let me put it this way. Policies that are needed to remove educational disparities mm -hmm. and make sure everybody has access to a quality education, English education and so on, and prepares them for the formal economy and for regular salary work, those policies are critical. They are important for everyone, particularly so for traditionally disadvantaged communities. Now, alongside that, is there space for policies that improve productivity in the traditional industries? Yes. So even in industries like textiles or handicrafts or various kinds of those kinds of industries, there is room for policies that enable scaling up, modernization, and increases in productivity and earnings, which doesn't necessarily mean that we're encouraging people to remain there. Mm. We're simultaneously equipping them with options to leave those industries and do other things. That doesn't mean that we should ignore the possibilities inherent in these industries to create jobs. Your report also says that kids of casual laborers are moving to regular jobs. So can we assume that 
they are starting to get the benefits of the quality education that they need to move to regular jobs to an extent i think the, the what the report shows is that improvements have been made which are clearly seen in the share of regular wage workers regular salaried workers in the workforce now you also point out that a big part of this increase is in very precarious informal kind of regular salaried work mm-hmm. right so that's not the kind of work that you means that you and I would have or you know many people listening to this would have when they say salaried work they might think of a job with a written contract you know like a desk job a white collar desk job with benefits and so on most of these jobs are not like that Mm. they are still coming at the lower end of the hierarchy so the people who are getting these jobs would not have very good high quality education but they may have a monthly salary which is an improvement over a very precarious daily wage kind of a job yeah just to add um so the fact that children of um, fathers who are casual wage workers are more likely to be in regular salaried work is a reflection of the general tra- transformation of the indian labor market it has moved towards a more regular salaried work employment structure and less of casual wage work but i think what is important to also note is that the the extent to which different groups have been able to uh, access salaried work is different so a child of a scheduled caste or a scheduled child father is still far less likely to access salaried work compared to the child of a general category worker so even in that movement to salaried work there is a differentiation depending on what caste uh, and religion that you come from so what we did was basically we can look at what is your father currently doing and versus what you are doing as a as an adult child mm-hmm. um what we are finding is that uh, a far larger share of children born in general category households so that were able to move out of casual wage work as in their fathers were in casual wage work and a far larger share of children of such households were able to move into regular salaried work uh, but in contrast the share of children from non general category households so from scst households they are still moving out of casual wage work which is what their, their father was doing um, they are moving into salaried work but the number is still quite low is still lower compared to what what you see for the general category households Did you notice a trend of the kids of casual laborers from SCST background? Uh, are they going to uh, jobs which are low skill? What kind of jobs are they moving into? So we haven't done a detailed analysis. I think this is one of those kinds of areas that the reporters bring up, which would be good to look at in more detail. We can put two and two together in the sense that, as I mentioned earlier, the majority of salary jobs created are of the precarious and informal kind. So we can surmise. that this is happening and we show some data that the movement up from casual work mostly happens in the informal kind of salaried work rather than the really good kind of jobs yeah. and that's because we didn't catch it in health and also proof for others because that's what the most kind of jobs have been right uh, now within that what kind of jobs is there which industries and so forth we have not looked at that kind of detail so is it fair to say that the indian labor market is going through a process of formalization Huh. that's a more difficult question to give a straightforward answer to if you know if you buy formalization you mean really good quality decent jobs with benefits and uh, contracts and so forth then not really uh, it's been a very very slow movement if anything uh, if you broaden it a little bit then perhaps yes um so one way we contrast this is that we differentiate just salary chart with share in organized sector 
So the organized sector in India is all those uh, businesses that employ more than 10 workers, let's say. If you have a business of a certain size and that you know you employ people in there, then the chances are that you might offer certain better conditions to them and so on. Now that share has expanded very, very slowly in India. By any strong measure of formalization, the economy has been uh, not formalizing very fast. Let me add one last bit to it, which is if you come at it from the angle of tax registrations and things like that, you know, GST and so forth, then you might get a separate a different picture because many, many small firms have also registered for GST. So that the government's tax base might have accordingly expanded. But the way in which formalization critically matters, which is how secure is employment, how good are the jobs, and what is the scale of production? How large are these, are these firms? Uh, we haven't been uh, increasing very fast. So could that be a problem of skills with the workers more than anything else? It's possible. There is certainly a role to be played by the quality of education and the employability mm. of people with higher education. Uh, and anecdotally, uh, one often hears that employers complaining about the lack of adequately skilled employees you know, that jobs exist, but the workers don't uh, don't seem to be ready for them. Uh, so we have a mismatch kind of an issue. We have workers who are not finding jobs, and we have you know jobs who are not finding workers. Uh, so some of this problem may have to do with lack of quality skilling and quality education. However, part of it also has to do with the lack of labor demand itself, meaning lack of adequate employment opportunities. And there is future work to be done on deciding uh, or understanding how much is one versus the other, you know, responsible. In your report, you talk about how unemployment is more in younger workers than in older workers. Could this have anything to do with that lack of skills? As they mature and as they work more, they get skills on the job and therefore they start getting more and better jobs. So on-the-job training and skilling is certainly important. But for the particular thing that you are referring to, which is the decline in the unemployment rate, with age, at least we haven't looked at it in any detail, but my guess is that a likely explanation is that in the first few years after completing education, individuals are either looking for the best kind of job that they can get, given their opportunities, uh, or are studying for government jobs and so on, so they are unemployed and looking for work, um, and they show up as unemployed in these numbers, but as the years go by, and if they don't get an aspirational job, then they have to do some kind of a job. Yeah, because they get married, their responsibilities to fulfill, and so on for men. And for women, very often, we'll talk more about this, I think, in the later half, that for women, they may also withdraw from the labor force once they get married. So they will also not appear in the unemployment numbers. So one way or the other, life cycle issues take over, and you don't appear as unemployed anymore. The final topic I'd like to discuss here in this is the lack of STSC business owners. Could this be because of the historical disadvantage they've been having? I think this is a very clear um, indicator of what historical disadvantage can be. Right? But also contemporary discrimination can be part of it. So part of it is that historically you don't have access to that level of education or those social networks, those credit networks that are needed to run a business. But also at any given point in time, irrespective of the historical disadvantage, there may be contemporary disadvantage, meaning that today an entrepreneur from a middle class background may find it harder to secure credit. Or because they are discriminated against by banks or to hire workers because they face reverse discrimination from workers towards employers uh, and so on. So there could be many reasons that come together to give us the basic result, which is that lower caste entrepreneurs are severely underrepresented. 
particularly for larger companies. So the government again is trying to kind of fix this by having uh, schemes like the Mudra scheme. So is it working? Have you seen a change in the recent years? We haven't looked at specifically the impact of policies like Mudra. Uh, now, one general comment I'll make with respect to this is that the vast majority of Mudra loans are small loans. Right? The ticket size is less than 50,000 rupees. So they're not geared towards larger businesses anyway, and they're not geared towards expansion in that way. You know, they're more livelihood type of loans. So they can't really address this problem that we are talking about, which is a problem of expand the scale of the business. Okay, so I'd like to move on to uh, what your study shows about women. So one good thing that I notice is that gap in pay has reduced since 2004. How did this happen? What's your take on it? I think so. There are multiple things at play here. So one is one thing to keep in mind is that the reduction in pay gap has come alongside a decline in women in the workforce. Mm. So there's been a sort of dropping out of women from the workforce. What is potentially happening is that the women who are remaining in employment are women who are highly educated and in good jobs. You know, so they that the jobs sort of match their aspirations in terms of what they desire and in terms of their educational qualifications. One potential reason for why the gender gap is also narrowed is also because women tend to be little more educated and they are in better jobs and they, this allows for some narrowing of the gap. So in e economics, you can do this technique to kind of uh, differentiate how much of the gap is explained by women being less educated by men versus mm -hmm. how much of, or, you know, other characteristics and how much of it is sort of unexplained. Um, so the unexplained component is very high uh, when it comes to explaining wage differentials between men and women. And it's uh, increased over time, which also seems to suggest that there is a sort of, to some extent, some kind of discriminatory component in women's pay scales that seem to still continue and persist. So another important thing which I found interesting was that women, when they worked, especially in the lower scale, I'm assuming, is because, of, uh, because they are in distress. Can you tell us a little more about that? I think this is something that we particularly saw uh, post the pandemic. I mean, not post pandemic, actually, it started from 2019 onwards. We've been seeing a steady increase in women's employment rate. When you look at what is the kind of employment that is uh, leading this increase, most of this is self-employment. And in particular, it is basically what we refer to as unpaid family work, which is basically that the woman is in some economic activity. She's helping out in the family farm or in the family business, but it's not getting explicitly reimbursed for it. So it's not that there's a pay or you know a wages coming to her directly. Um, so the nature of this employment suggests that it's likely to be distress-led because it's also a time when prices have risen and earnings have also fallen. And the other thing to note is that the increase in self-employment for women has also been accompanied by a sort of stagnation in self-employment earnings. It is still um, relatively low compared to pre-pandemic level. So when you combine both the nature of employment as well as the earnings from that type of employment, it seems to suggest that even though there's been an uptick in women's employment rate, it may not entirely be a positive thing. It could be a sign of family budgets having to, them having to add to family budgets and they have to be forced to engage in some kind of economic activity. In general, your report knows that the participation of women in the labor force is quite low. This is, I think, a given and everyone, everyone knows this is a huge issue. What I found really interesting is that even states like Tamil Nadu and Karnataka which we assume are more developed states, the participation of women is actually really low. Why is this? 
there's multiple factors at play when it comes to women's participation mm. so like we earlier discussed some of it is that they are participating simply because they need to contribute to a household income so when household incomes increase so in your so, so developed states where household budgets are not as constrained and husbands are earning more then the imperative for women to really participate in paid work is less so especially mm. if good work or good jobs are not available so for some of these states what you're seeing is possibly that because um women have the luxury to not be in say manual drudgerous informal work they've withdrawn from that work and since the other kind of good jobs have not come about they are not participating but then of course then there's the other side of it is also that there are norms around uh, women's employment and norms does not necessarily correlate with levels of economic development so you could still have a highly developed state where norms are still persisting so whether women should move outside of the home alone and whether the, the kinds of jobs that are appropriate for women to partake in can those kind of norms can still persist even in a developed uh, state and in uh, in less developed states particularly so and so that if there is no imperative for the woman to have to go and get income uh, then the norms kind of take precedence and that keeps her further away from paid work so several state governments are trying to uh, change this norm right by giving some sort of incentive or a benefit for women to go and work like say in karnataka well they gave uh, a woman free bus passes in a hope that they will be more encouraged to go and work can those kinds of things ultimately help women gain more employment well i think yes uh, so we have some work in the report where we've looked at census information to see how women say how they travel to work so if women do work outside the home which is a very small share of women how do they get to that workplace uh, so what we saw is that you know if it's a shorter distance or even if it's still up to 10 kilometers women are still still traveling by foot mm-hmm. um, whereas men as in distances increase they seem to start using bicycles and motorbikes and so on but the other thing that we saw is as as distances increase what men do is they use motorized vehicles but women actually increasingly rely on public transport bus networks and more public infrastructure transport infrastructure is crucial for allowing women access to employment but i think so indeed it is it is these kind of schemes can have a fallback and a feedback effect that it can bring in women back into the workforce but i think it's also important to view these schemes not just in sort of an instrumental way that you know they're good because they get women back into the workforce but i think there's larger benefits from them a it's even if it's not just to places of employment just the fact that women have easier mobility whether it is to the nearest shop whether it's to the nearest temple that in itself can have demonstrative effects right having more women in public spaces has an impact for other women who share that public space with them um and i think those kind of things can actually has a far more important role um and i think it's also important to look at the quality of women's leisure as well a lot of women especially in karnataka post the free bus travel uh, scheme has been using it to access places of worship and you know pilgrimage centers and also i mean to the extent that it can enhance the quality of women's leisure these are also important ways in which these schemes can help women Okay so I'd like to move on to the final part about the unemployment picture as a whole in India so even in the starting of the report you said that India's growth has not led to enough employment in fact your report shows the relations between the two have come down over a period of time why is this happening we can separate out this you know into first the long run kind of thing and then what happened in the immediate 
past, uh, which is a little very special case, what was already discussed about distressed employment and so on. But if we set that aside, then what we are saying certainly holds that the Indian economy has not been able to convert its rapid growth into rapid job creation. Part of this is something that many countries have been facing. India is not alone in this. That there has been a decline in the connection between growth and jobs happening across the world. There has to do with things like mechanization and automation, which are uh, cumulative processes that sort of take, uh, you know, build on themselves. Yeah. So processes become more and more automated and so on. And with artificial intelligence and so forth coming in, uh, many sectors have become heavily mechanized and automated. That gives us growth in the sense of value added and the production of value that doesn't create jobs. India, however, as we show in the report, even accounting for this general global phenomenon is not doing so well. And the reason for this, uh, this is not so, as much an explanation as just an accounting, that if you look at where the GDP growth has come from, it's tended to come from industries that are not very large employers to begin with. Right? Things like um, IT or business process outsourcing, finance, uh, you know, banking and insurance, uh, these kinds of industries tend to be far less labor-intensive to begin with compared to, let's say, manufacturing of various kinds. And particularly, manufacturing of the labor-intensive variety, like garments, like textiles, furniture, toys, and consumables, and so forth. So countries like China or Vietnam have grown, or even Bangladesh, have grown those industries very fast. So their GDP growth has been a little bit better connected to jobs. Our GDP growth has come from sectors and industries which are not very job intensive, and so we have not been able to do it. Uh, that's not, as I said, an explanation. It's just sort of an accounting of what happened. Question is, why have we not been able to expand those sectors that create jobs? Uh, and that has a complicated answer to do with um, things like ease of doing business, how competitive we are, the scale of production and the productivity of Indian businesses, you know, are we export competitive or not, and things like that. How does our industrial and trade policy work? These are many issues that are outside the scope of this report, although there are other people who have done work on this. Uh, but it remains going forward one of the most important policy challenges. Uh, Rosa, what's your take? No, I, I mean, I think uh, Amit is the expert on it, but I agree that it's uh, basically the nature of industrial growth that, I mean, most economies rely on the manufacturing sector to have to generate jobs. And what our manufacturing sector has achieved is far less job creation, but also a lot of the job creation being largely informal. Um, and I think the extent to which the kind of services sector can generate these kind of wage jobs is very limited. And there is limited capacity for an economy like India for, to have sort of a self-sustaining uh, employment generation through simply through self-employment. Sustainable self-employment is very limited. So how do we reconcile it to what can be the way forward? Uh, again, the answer is not unfortunately simple. In our previous report, 2021, which was a COVID report, but at the end of that report, we had uh, provided a framework for a national employment policy that laid out what are the pieces that can go into, you know, if we wanted to develop an employment policy which had the focus solely on job creation, then on the supply side of the labor market, what do we need to do? The things we have talked about, type of skilling, quality of skilling, quality of education, mobility for women, public safety, well, labor supply side issues. And on the labor demand side, uh, how do we promote private sector employment? Because when the economy is large as India, public sector employment can only be a very small part of the puzzle, which is important. I mean, the government needs to fill vacancies, needs to hire adequate number of teachers and nurses and doctors and uh, 
provide public services and public goods, and that will create employment, but that will not be enough. It needs to have a policy framework that promotes small businesses, MSMEs, particularly the micro ones, to expand and scale. For a 10 worker enterprise to become a 20 worker enterprise and so on. And that's where how other countries have done it. We have not managed to do it so well, and we need to focus on that. Okay, so thank you so much for joining me today, uh, Rosa and Amit, for the podcast. Thank you. Thank you.